From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Today is our happy midterm postmortem. The nation has gathered our top political writers for a conversation about what happened on Tuesday and why. They'll all be here in a minute. We are taping our midterm postmortem at midday on Wednesday, the day after Election Day, when some key races have not yet been decided. We have a terrific group, which includes Ellie Mistal, the nation's justice correspondent, author of the bestseller, Allow Me to Retort, A Black Guy's Guide to the Constitution. Also, Joan Walsh, national affairs correspondent, author of the book, What's the Matter with White People? She went to Georgia for the Stacey Abrams and Raphael Warnock campaigns. And of course, we have John Nichols, national affairs correspondent, author of the new book, Coronavirus Criminals and Pandemic Profiteers. He's in Madison for the gubernatorial and Senate campaigns in Wisconsin. And we have Chris Lehman, DC bureau chief, former editor of the New Republic, author of the book, The Money Cult, Capitalism, Christianity, and the Unmaking of the American Dream. And our conversation today will be moderated by D.D. Guttenplan, editor of The Nation. Trump candidates lost across the country. Trump's rival for the Republican nomination, Ron DeSantis, had, you know, what from the point of view of Trump haters was a great night. In fact, I would love to hear the panel's thoughts on whether we should worry more about a DeSantis run in 2024 than a Trump run. I'm going to start, I guess, with Joan. Big winners from last night. It isn't called yet, but Katie Hobbs in Arizona and uh, Mark Kelly in Arizona. Carrie Lake and Blake Masters are two of the most hideous people in the country who've ever you know, graced our political scene. So it looks pretty good for the Democrats there. So that was a huge relief to me. Um, I was relieved to see Kathy Hochul win. I didn't even think it would be as close as it got. That was disappointing. We've got to talk about New York Democrats. Something, Something's really wrong there. That was really a pathetic showing. Chris Lehman, big, big winners that you particularly noticed? Well, John Fetterman, I think he's a big winner, both in terms, I, I think, of shifting the momentum for a Democratic majority in the Senate by picking up that seat. And I also think um, he was a win for economic populism, which amid all the pundit chatter leading up to the election, everyone was supposed to be freaked out about inflation. They were saying the economy is really weak for Democrats. And here you have someone who was like four square behind um all the income supports out of uh, the COVID crisis supported Biden's student loan relief package, which interestingly, Tim Ryan, who lost in Ohio running as a populist, did not support that. Um, and given the salience of the youth vote, I think, you know, and, and it's also the case in uh, Nevada, which is close, that the Democratic incumbent did not align behind the, the Biden student aid. Um, in terms of losers, I would be remiss if I didn't mention Lauren Boebert. You know, John mentioned uh, Masters and and uh, Carrie Lake as two of the worst people. There is room for Lori, <laughs> Lauren Boebert on that list, and she will not be darkening the, the halls of Congress. I certainly did not see that coming. You know, I was among the people who were skeptical about the closing pitch that Democrats mounted about democracy being on the ballot. But I think in retrospect, 
um, that had some real traction. And obviously, I think another winner here is the mobilization behind reproductive rights. We saw, um, you know, the abortion ban referendum go down in Kentucky and and in four other states, pro-abortion referenda won easily. So that was a clean sweep. Ellie. I really think that the mainstream media in general and the the Beltway and corporate media, uh, Beltway and New York media specifically, like huge L. Y'all got it wrong again, Mm -hmm. and you did it in such a way as to just do nothing but freak people out for six months, knowing absolutely nothing. I swear to God, I never want to see another poll for as long as I live. All right. Like the the New York media needs to like there is a general thing that the corporate media needs to like look inside of itself and figure out not only why it keeps getting things wrong, but why it keeps getting things wrong in favor of Republican narratives. Like, like what do you what are you doing within your newsrooms, within your still largely white newsrooms that you always seem to be parroting an incorrect Republican narrative and shoving it down people's throats in the months and weeks and days leading up to every election. This ain't the first time. Um, Another big loser, Kevin McCarthy, man. (laughs) Even if Republicans take the House and it looks like maybe they, that is an ungovernable coalition. (laughs) Best case scenario for him right now, he's going to have what, like an eight seat majority, maybe? Like best case, like, mm, good luck. Good luck, Kev. Um, (laughs) Couldn't happen to a worse guy. The winners, I mean, like what won is the idea that we get to do this again in 2024, which was not a fait accompli at the beginning of the night, right? Like if like two days ago, we couldn't be sure that we were going to get to have another kind of free and fair election in 2024. Now it looks like probably we will get to have another election in 2024. So I guess that's a win. The other win, and it sticks a bit in my craw to say this, but um. Joe Biden just had the best night of a first term incumbent president like ever. While I have kind of like serious disagreements sometimes with his strategies and his policies and and what he does, he's not wrong, right? Like you can't say that he's wrong. The candidates who stayed on Biden's message overperformed. They did extremely well. And it was the candidates that that started to try to backtrack off of Biden's message. I don't see how you can look at this election as anything else other than an endorsement of not just the Biden agenda, but like, and again, this is the part that sticks in my craw, the Biden strategy for pumping out that agenda seems to have, generally speaking, worked. So good job, Joe. John Nichols. Since we're all starting with losers, I will start with my biggest loser, and it's by far Ron DeSantis. He has now become the face of the Republican establishment and the Donald Trump wing, which is the dominant wing in the party in most of the country, uh, will be out to get him. And uh, Ron DeSantis is going to be very easy to get. Uh, He is indeed Ron the Sanctimonious. Uh, The translation, I think, to the national stage will be ugly and rough. And I can tell you that in races around the country, the Republican governor that people wanted to have come and campaign with them, even though Ron DeSantis went everywhere and forced his way in, the governor they wanted was Glenn Youngkin from Virginia. DeSantis has kind of ended up with a big political target on him. And so I think that makes him a loser. To my mind, the biggest winner is Barack Obama. 
and I don't think there's any question that uh, if you look at where the mood was on the day that Barack Obama went on the campaign trail, that he, where he did it with skills that, that were universally celebrated, he, for better or worse in the Democratic Party, uh, signaled himself to be the party's best communicator. Uh, two other winners. I think that there was a big effort to write the choice movement off. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I will bring up one person, and that's Dana Nessel in Michigan. Dana Nessel, to a greater extent than anyone else, argued at every turn that choice was a winning issue. She fought to get that choice referendum on the ballot in Michigan. Dana Nessel, Attorney General of Michigan, will eventually be either a U.S. Attorney General or a presidential candidate or something because she's that good at it. Parallel to that, I do think Democratic governors and gubernatorial candidates were big winners. It's the lost story of this because we cannot get ourselves out of the Washington mode. Democratic gubernatorial candidates picked up at least two more governorships, perhaps three if Arizona goes the right way. And the interesting thing is they did so as a more diverse, more progressive, uh, and and frankly, more strategic group than they've ever been in modern times. Uh, We will have a LGBTQ woman governor of Massachusetts, a state that you know, has been, you know, white male leadership, except for a couple of brief interruptions for a very long time. Uh, with Maura Healy, you're going to have uh, first black governor of Maryland. You're going to have uh, a lot of younger governors. And it's just these victories are huge and they came in places very unexpected. And these Democrats ran more progressive than a lot of the national messaging. They were on Medicare expansion or Medicaid expansion. They were on legalizing marijuana was a universal for these folks. Um, I think the other big winner is is folks who didn't give up on rural voters. At the top of that list is John Fetterman. John Fetterman ran on a strategy that he would go to every county and every town of any size in the state. Uh, It clearly paid off for him. Tony Evers and Mandela Barnes, although Barnes narrowly lost, in Wisconsin did the same strategy. And I, when I looked at the map this morning, I saw islands of blue voting in rural areas that had been lost for eight years that were back. And I think there's no way that Democrats win in major states without at least holding their own in rural areas. Stacey Abrams ran such a great race four years ago. It was so painful to, to watch this unfold. I think that she was hurt by being perceived as having, you know, put herself out to be vice president. She was, you know, viewed as as kind of becoming a national celebrity and leaving some Georgians behind. I don't Mm -hmm. think that's accurate or fair, but I heard that a lot. But there's still, you know, issues of misogyny in all of our communities um and they tried to face it head on they did every night they did you know black men have something to say events she won black men let's be clear overwhelmingly overwhelmingly the people who really should be ashamed today are white women in georgia so you know let me get that out of the way but you know there is a perception um, uh, you know among black women that she did pay a little bit of a price for being for being a woman, and uh, I can't I can't disagree with that. I mean, I think that Warnock ran a very good campaign. He ran on a good campaign for what he's going to have to do.
Yes, Stacey Abrams won black men. The, the, the media narrative that black men were going to abandon Stacey Abrams, Didn't that happen. is just wrong. I do think that Stacey Abrams took a hit for being a black woman, but that's with white women. It is white women that punished her for being a black woman. When you just straight up look at the exit polls nationally, right? And I know what you see, as usual, is 65% of white men voting for the Republican candidate, 55% or you know, so, 55 to 52% of white women voting for the Republican candidate, and a majority of everybody else voting against Republicans. One quick thing, though. Take a look at independent women, which is a fascinating thing. Independent women of all races, usually uh, a big bellwether in a midterm election year, they usually are the ones who swing against the party in power. Right. This time, independent women, I think it was 54 to 42, a pretty wide margin, voted for the Democrats. And then when you drill down into that, it was the choice issue. If you look at the number of ads that the Democrats actually put up on choice before the very end of the campaign, they did not make it in many of these states as central an issue as they could have and should have. And, uh, and so... I do think that the parties themselves and the billionaires who donate to the Democratic Party, they, they still tend to not figure out how to reach out. There's another bright spot for those of us who, who are economic populists, and that is the demise in New York of Sean Patrick Maloney. Here's the head of the DCCC. He spent eight hundred or $600,000 of their money on his own race. He bumped out Mondaire Jones from his yeah. district. Uh, losing a great progressive voice in Congress, mm -hmm. and then he went down. So, and can we note also that he was also one of the prime movers on the strategy of having Democrats spend money to help to quote unquote nominate the weakest Republican, uh, which sometimes worked, uh, particularly in Pennsylvania governor's race. But you know, when I watched Mandela Barnes in Wisconsin without money, without resources in September when he was getting beaten up in the most vile possible ways on television, I was wondering, boy, you know, maybe if some of that money that Maloney and the other insiders had and the Democratic Party had steered into Republican primaries, maybe if that was available, uh, it might have been a little easier for Mandela Barnes in Wisconsin. I, I just want to do one thing. Uh, white, after kind of uh, crapping on the white people in general, as, as <laughs> I am wont to do, white voters under 30, first Gen Z, congressman um, um, in Florida and an otherwise terrible situation that happened in Florida. We got the first Gen Z congressman in Florida. The, the, you, one might argue that one of the big national stories, even as Don, I agree, we're kind of, this was a great signal to run a however old, 120-year-old man for president. <laughs> whatever we're going to do about that, right? At some point, the Democratic Party needs to get younger yeah. because young and people are demanding it. And here's the, well, they are now demanding it. That's the problem. They're, they Young people are actually, some young people are standing, stepping up and running. Folks like Maxwell Frost, who you mentioned, Summer Lee in uh, Pennsylvania mm -hmm. and others. Uh, but, you know, look, if you look at the polling data, the young people are most inclined toward Bernie Sanders. It is an authenticity issue, I think, with the Democratic Party. And, and that, that for young people, I think they do respond more to authenticity. And... If you want to dump on on folks in the Republican Party or Democratic Party, I apologize. They lacked a youth strategy. 
you had the president of the United States do a couple of things on climate and on on uh, student loan. But remember, when you're the dealing with student loan debt, right, you are not dealing with people under 25 that much. You want to talk to college <laughs> voters, right? You talk about ending the cost of college, right? Addressing that. And there just wasn't a strategy and it was agonizing to watch. In 2016, there was this big youth movement behind Bernie. The party establishment could not distance They, re- they rejected it. Far enough away from that youth movement. And you saw what happened in 2016. Could tell you about this year, right. Bernie Sanders reached out and said, I'm, I'm ready to go to campuses. The party leaders were, by and large, resistant to that. They were like, oh, no, no, they, they even have ads up that attack Bernie Sanders. We shouldn't do that. So Sanders finally turned to Tom Steyer and Next Gen, and Next Gen helped to get Bernie out. He did 20 campuses across the country, uh, drew you know huge crowds. I'm not giving him the credit that you would give to Obama or to other folks, but what I'm telling you is that having a youth-oriented strategy that has issues and that has investment and a program for democrats that's that should be like the easiest thing in the world in a lot of these key races you had young voters turning out upwards of 70 percent for democratic candidates oh it's it's overwhelming our midterm post-mortem conversation will continue after a short break for these messages How did the DCCC scheme of supporting the Trumpiest candidates in the primaries pan out? I hate this strategy. I think there's a lot of reasons to be opposed to it, but I have to acknowledge uh, in places like New Hampshire, uh, Mm -hmm. it was probably a saving grace. Uh, And so because Maggie Hassan's easy win in New Hampshire is critical to potentially holding the Senate. I'm like John, I hate this strategy because among other things, it relieves Democratic strategists of doing the hard political work of persuading people to come over to your side based on your actual agenda. You're just using fear. You're using the specter of, you know, we can't afford to give power to these people, which is absolutely true, but you're not doing the work. It also is usually done on behalf of centrist Democratic candidates who haven't built out a campaign that has a dynamic appeal, right? It's more like... We'll, we'll get a Republican who is so bad that our boring candidate can win. Is it possible to build off the foundation of this election to develop a broad progressive coalition for 2024? Say what you like about the Pennsylvania Democratic Party. They went all in for Fetterman. You saw ads for Fetterman by John, by Bob Casey. You mm-hmm. saw the organization turning people out in Philadelphia in great numbers as they can do when they want to. But, you know, are there other are there other races that you also where you can see the beginnings of this coalition? So let me give you a quick example and other people will have better ones. But uh, Michigan, the fact of the matter is that the women who lead the Michigan Democratic Party at this point, Governor Whitmer, uh, Jocelyn Benson, uh, Dana Nessel, they they made choice central. And very important, they raised it up higher than other parties. That was very smart. It proved polling tells us it was good. But they never let go of economic issues. They are very, all very, very close to unions, very, very deeply committed in a UAW state to being aligned with unions. And also all three of them 
poured enormous energy into Detroit and into black communities across that state. If you want to look at building a coalition and building something real in a state that Donald Trump won in 2016, I would say the Michigan model is a pretty significant one. I think you take all the money out of Florida, you take <laughs> all the money out of the fool's gold that is Texas every yeah. goddamn time, yeah. and you put it in North Carolina, and we yeah. have the first black woman senator from North Carolina. Yes, that was, that was I mean, that, that was a perfect example of that race of media malpractice, because nobody was writing about North Carolina, and it's it was clear that that was agonizingly close. That was the most painful part of the night for me last Yep, time. and we didn't yep. spend enough money in, in North yep. Carolina because I think, again, we always chase Florida and we always chase freaking Texas. And so my other thing about building this progressive coalition, I swear to God, if Democrats run another white male in Texas, I love Beto. I think he's a great guy. Love to have a beer with him. Hope that he has a great career. He's not going to win Texas. In, in these Latino heavy districts in Florida and Texas in the Southwest, they have found Latino Republicans to run for them. And the Democrats can't seem to do that. How is that even possible? Because again, despite, again, there's gonna be a huge meeting there. No, Latinos flipping towards Republican. No, not really, not really. No. Majority of Latinos still voting with the Democratic Party, but we can't seem to find Latino candidates to run against Latino Republicans. And of course we do find them, we just don't vote for them in the primaries. So again, you're gonna, you're gonna, you gotta need to start moving money out of Florida, which is just, just gone. That's a red state now, right? It's like, it, you move money out of Florida, you put it into North Carolina and you invest, if you're gonna go after the fool's gold in Texas and some of these other states, you gotta start investing in candidates of color in that case, in those states that have some ability to turn out the the non-white vote in those states and and see what happens there. Ohio is the quadrennial, in fact, biennial heartbreak. The mm. last time Democrat, I mean, Sherrod Brown, Sherrod Brown can win Ohio, right? Yeah. Give him that. But the last time any other Democrat than Sherrod Brown won Ohio was Barack Obama 10 years ago. And yet massive amounts of money go there. And the truth is, this is a painful thing because we at one time say we want the 50 state strategy, but the fact is that that there's never been a 50 state strategy. There has always been a bias toward a handful of big states that folks in Washington think they can pull across the line rather than actually building out a strategy in mid-sized states that would, I think, be far more beneficial. And that includes North Carolina. Um, and frankly, I mean, look, I knew he wasn't going to win, but Charles Booker in in Kentucky was a fantastic candidate with a fantastic strategy running in a state where choice was on the ballot. And he never got he didn't get an, an inch of help from the National Party. And that's in a state with a Democratic governor, by the way. Clearly, what I think would almost guarantee um, a Warnock victory in, in the runoff would be if Trump declares his presidential candidacy. I think yes. that will. That would help. That will send Democratic turnout through the roof. So once again, we may have to be saying thank you, Donald Trump, for the Senate. This election, to the extent that Republicans are going to take back the House and are still very close to taking back the Senate, these are gifts from John Roberts to the Republican Mm -hmm. Party. 
not just in the 2013 decision where he gutted uh, the Voting Rights Act, but in the 2021 decision in Rucho v. County Common Cause, where he allowed gerrymanders to go supercharged. You don't have a Republican House right now if you're not allowed to gerrymander Florida, uh, uh, the uh, Texas, and oh, Alabama in the yeah. way that they have, right? So, like, the, this is... The fact that Republicans are still in the game and are probably still going to win the House, that is a direct one-to-one gift from John to the rest of the party. So, I, again, I think that he he's actually kind of a winner here. His political acumen has once again saved the Republicans' bacon, and if they had listened to him on abortion, it would have saved them even more. You didn't mention the decision that that Roberts organized that actually made Mitch McConnell who he is, and that's Citizens United. United. The, the lost story of 2022 is that this was the year that Mitch McConnell, to a greater extent, even than any time in the past, solidified his relationship with the big checkbook billionaire donors. He was running them more effectively and moving more money than anybody else in Washington. Uh, and there is simply no doubt that his marshalling of billionaire money through a variety of avenues. Uh, that's what saved Ron Johnson. There is simply no doubt of that. That's what saved J.D. Vance, who Mitch McConnell hated. And yet, when Peter Thiel cut the money off for J.D. Vance, it was Mitch McConnell who t- literally moved in tens of millions of dollars. And so Mitch McConnell is not a loser here. In fact, he actually got out of 2022 a relationship that, as Elliot points out, in 2024, uh, you're going to see him as far more central than Trump, far more central than DeSantis or any of these other players. It will be Mitch McConnell who will sit with the billionaires and decide where the money goes. Republicans are always going to have billionaires. They are the party of organized money. And, you know, it's true that under Bill Clinton, the Democrats became the other party of organized money. Uh, but, But that's a race the Democrats are never going to win. What, what are the elements of the coalition? What do we see as key shoots of hope from, from this morning? And where do we take them or where do we think they need to go for 2024 in order to oppose this tidal wave of money, which is happening? There's always a green wave, whether there's a red wave or a blue wave. I, I think we do see the elements of a nascent coalition in the results today. It, it is about um, the right to reproductive choice. It is about racial injustice and rising inequality, which are, you know, the features of the economy that the billionaires want. So, and I think John, in pointing out the, the Michigan story, which is, I think, an, an encouraging model, reminds us, you know, that historically the Democrats have been the party of, of working people. I will confess, I started reporting a gloom and doom column <laughs> before last we night's results, and I, we, you know, was interviewing a uh, former Clinton White House first-term speechwriter who said, like, coming into the 94 uh, debacle of the Republican Revolution, you had not Clinton himself, but all the insider, the people we've been talking about, the D.C. savvy set, um, saying, um, basically, forbidding use of the word union on the uh, 1994 campaign trail. And uh, that was because, again, these were the new Democrats. They were shedding themselves of all these constituencies, which 
very much included African-Americans. Remember the Sister Soja moment? Very much was the, and we haven't even talked about the phantom issue of crime this cycle, like, right. um, you know, but Bill Clinton was the capital punishment um, mm -hmm. supporting president who executed Ronnie Rector off the campaign trail to show what a tough on crime asshole he was. We have here, I think, you know, we a way to thread these incipient movements together under a banner of broad, broadly speaking, economic justice. Fetterman's victory is is an auger in that direction. I think Ryan was never going to win in Ohio. Ohio did do really well in terms of the congressional delegation. Mm -hmm. And I think Ryan helped elevate those candidates by harping on economic justice. Uh, the problem, of course, the Democratic Party has its own millionaire and billionaire donors. And they very much don't want to run in them. Stacey Abrams and uh, Raphael Warnock, I believe, outspent their opponent. Money was not an issue here. How money was spent might have been an issue. You know, I mean, I think that people were frustrated with Warnock for putting more money into television ads than on the ground. We're talking about elections and we shouldn't be talking about elections. We should be talking about politics. If we were serious about politics, what we would recognize is that if the Democrats took down their ads nationally for one day during this election cycle, let's say October 18th, they just took the ads down, I promise you they would have tens of millions of dollars from across the country. If they put that money into funding of rebuilding their party apparatus in every county, every one of the 3,700 counties in the United States, then they would have something permanent that was real, that was actually in contact with real people. And so they could fund it with one day of their TV ads. But I promise you that, well, that sounds completely logical, I think, on this conversation. If you said that inside a DNC, DSCC, DCCC, you know, any of these groups, they would look at you like you were out of your mind because the D-link between democratic strategy at the top and actual politics is almost complete. These people do not deal in politics, they deal in elections, and their whole theory is, how do we put a bunch of pieces together for this election, then let it fall apart, and then try and figure out how to put it together for the next election. What we talked about a little bit is crime, and I guess I would love to hear whether any of you think that any of the candidates show that the Democrats have figured out how to talk on talk about crime because I listened and I didn't hear it. I know that I talk too much about Wisconsin, but it is still the greatest place in the world. And um, in Wisconsin, Tony Evers, the governor of Wisconsin, in the final stage, uh, he put up ads that were, that they were put up actually, I think by a group backing him, but they were fantastic. They had his opponent going on about crime and then they would flip, split screen and go to Tony Evers and says, Tony Evers, he just can't get his mind off uh, lowering costs and getting gas prices down and stuff like that. And then they'd put up something that his opponent was saying on culture war stuff. And they'd say, Tony Evers, he just can't stop thinking about inflation. They actually did a brilliant job of juxtaposing the use of uh, issues to divert people from the core of the campaign to what really what people are actually associating with. And they took the issue of inflation back from the Republicans and gave it to Evers. It was an incredibly successful ad campaign. I invite people to look at it rather than me describe it. But the bottom right. line is, 
you have to confront these issues and then show them to be the strategies that they are rather than simply running away from them or even getting into a tit for tat that never succeeds. Our midterm postmortem conversation included Ellie Mistal, Justice Correspondent, Joan Walsh, National Affairs Correspondent, John Nichols, National Affairs Correspondent, and Chris Lehman, D.C. Bureau Chief. And our conversation today was moderated by D.D. Guttenplan, editor of The Nation. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. William Broughton is our audio editor. Renee Reynolds is our associate producer. Alan Minsky is our producer. Ludwig Hurtado is our executive producer. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Bhaskar Sunkara is president of The Nation. And Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.